0: Listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Mitch Patel. Mitch's company, Vision Hospitality Group, represents a portfolio of hotels affiliated with brands such as Hilton and Marriott, as well as the company's first boutique hotel. The Edwin overlooking the Walnut Street Bridge. Mitch's family immigrated to the United States from India, settling in Cleveland, Tennessee. Mitch is a successful businessman, founder, philanthropist, and diehard Tennessee fan. Mitch, welcome to my Morning Cup. Before we get into your career and how you started Vision Hospitality with $3,000 in your bank account and a drive to succeed, tell me what's in your Morning Cup.
1: So I don't drink coffee, but here lately, my wife uh, loves chai, and that's something she absolutely has to have if we're traveling or at home. And so um, I started drinking green tea with her just to give her company, and uh, so that's what's uh, typically in my morning cup.
0: Are you addicted yet?
1: Not yet. I'm
0: getting used to it. Well, again, welcome. Uh, You have a very interesting story to tell, Mitch. I always felt the best place to start is the beginning. So if you would tell us a little bit about how your parents immigrated to this country, they brought the family and take us through that journey up to when you get to Cleveland, Tennessee.
1: Um, So I always start off with my father uh, came to this great country with $8 in his pocket to pursue something pretty powerful, the American dream. And this is the greatest country in the world with the greatest people. And uh, you'll often hear me talking about that. Sometimes we take those things for granted, but uh, for an immigrant, and it's, it's, it's pretty powerful what the American dream offers. So my father came to this great country, like I said, with $8 in his pocket and came here to study and uh, settled it uh, in California, University of California, Davis. And at this time, so I was born in India. I was about uh, nine months old when my father came to this country. And
0: how old was your dad? Probably
1: about 24 at that time, yeah. So he's So he's young.
0: 24 with a family, and he's packing everyone up and not moving across state, but across the world.
1: Absolutely. Something that is so foreign to him, right? I mean, it's just completely different country. And back then, Mike, uh, there wasn't a great way to communicate. There was no WhatsApp or, or no internet, face, FaceTime it? and no, no internet, no even making a phone call you had to kind of register it months in advance to make that call from India and vice versa. So I didn't speak to him or see him for four years.
0: So you were nine months old when he left and you didn't really have any contact with him until you were almost five.
1: That's correct. And uh, so he would write, but I didn't know how to read. (laughs) And so I saw some pictures maybe, but that's about it. So when my mother and I joined him, you know, when I was about nearly five years old, landed in San Francisco, and uh, he came to pick us up, of course. He had this beard now, and uh, this is the, the hippie generation in California, so yeah. you could imagine. He had this big beard.
0: So this is mid-70s This 80s? is in
1: 1973, yeah. around there. Down yeah, 73, 74. Yeah, so close. And I didn't know who he was. Wow. Yeah. I don't remember all of this, but, of course, my parents uh, remind me of this, and I I wouldn't go to him. I didn't know him. And I was supposed to call him Dad. And uh, so it was a really strange period of my life. Didn't know any English. We didn't grow up in Mumbai or Delhi. This is some small village of about a few thousand people in the rural countryside in India.
0: And what was the name of the village? It's
1: called Sebni. Sebni. Seven? Seven, Sevni? Sevni. S E V N I. And I just came back a couple of weeks ago took my kids uh to Sevni.
0: Was that their first time there?
1: That was not their first time. They've been a few times uh but it's always um an adventure, right?
0: Bit of a pilgrimage too, isn't it?
1: It is. It is. You know, so for for hundreds of years, you know, my grandfather, his father, his father his, you know, for hundreds of years there were farmers in this village. And that was the expectation of what people would do. I was like, my father, the expectation for my grandfather, for him, was to be a farmer. So there was this little elementary school in the village, and they taught you the basics, right? Reading, little math, and then that's it. You became a farmer. And so my father wanted to do something more than that, and he didn't want to just farm. And so he pleaded with my grandfather that, there's a high school about three, four miles away in another neighboring village. And he wanted to pursue a further education there. My grandfather uh, agreed. And so he would walk barefoot in the monsoons because there was these, these were muddy roads. Mm-hmm. So he would have, if he had shoes, it would get stuck in the mud. Right. But he would walk these three to four miles every day to school there and back. Wow. And he didn't have the best eyesight back then. You know, he had wind up getting some glasses uh, later on, which were unusual, by the way, to have eyeglasses. But there was no electricity, running water. And so he would have to study kerosene lantern. And sometimes you wouldn't have that. And so you couldn't even read or study. Think about that for a second for an exam that you might have. But he graduated first in his class, and that gave him an opportunity to go on to college. First person to ever go to college in, we're talking about generations and generations, generations, and very few have ever gone to college from this little village. And then he wound up having an opportunity to come to the United States through a student visa program. But the point I'm making is, if he didn't have that courage to want to do something different than to farm, then who knows where I yeah. would be today? I might be a rickshaw driver, right? <laughs> uh, or I might have been a farmer in this small village in India. So it's amazing what the American dream.
0: Where did he get that drive? What, what spurred in him to say, wait a second, I don't have to do what tradition says?
1: I think back in the, the 60s, you know, maybe late 50s, early 60s, Bollywood was all the rage in India. Uh, so there were these theaters opening up, and people were playing these movies with these, these actors and actresses, and not just showing these great places in India, but outside of India, right? Switzerland to London. And it just opened his eyes. He saw the world. That's exactly it. There was no internet or even TV, Yeah, but there were movies. And I think he was fascinated by the movies. He knew that there was something more than this small village and this farm life.
0: You know, you and I were talking earlier about culture, and it's interesting how the culture of movies and entertainment drives so much of people's desire for more. And it sounds like that's what spurred your dad. No,
1: oh, absolutely.
0: He comes to the United States studying at Cal Davis for five years before you get here. I'm I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go get established and then I'm gonna call for your very, very traditional American dream immigrant story. How was he making a living during that time?
1: He was uh, not making much. Uh, He was studying and then doing research uh, and his professor was giving him some some small stipend uh, and then he had a scholarship as well. So when we moved, my mother and I moved to Davis I remember living in this married student housing. It was this apartment complex with students uh, from all over the world, families from all over the world. Literally our neighbor was Brazilian and there was someone across the hall from Norway and so forth. It was just this United Nations right here in California. It was an amazing experience. I remember they had like this food festival and, cultural festival in this little development. And there were just foods from all over the world. So I, I, it was a fascinating upbringing. Um, There were a few other Indian families that we became very close to, but it was uh, a very unique experience. Again, I picked up English and I'm sure I picked up a lot of different uh, words from different languages. (laughs) And I do remember we wind up moving to another city after college too, but I went to five different elementary schools before fifth grade or sixth grade. Five different public elementary schools. So you
0: naturally had to adapt and learn to make friends and be a bit extroverted, I imagine. You know, I was
1: telling this story to someone not many years ago, and when I was sharing that, I almost wanted to feel some empathy from the person that was listening that, wow, five different public elementary schools, that must have been so hard. But that's not the feedback that I received from this person. This person said, that's why you are who you are. And so all those experiences define us and who we are today. And I really believe, you're right, Mike, that every school, first of all, not just forget the five different public elementary schools I went to, I was different. I wasn't white, I wasn't black, I wasn't Hispanic, and then that last elementary school went moved cross-country from California in the middle of my fifth grade school year to Cleveland, Tennessee. Well, that's a change. That is a change. We're talking about, you know, here's someone of different ethnicity, different color, and here you are in a new class, middle of your fifth grade school year, and I think that has taught me to adapt and to put my hand out and introduce myself. And I often say that to others. I tell that to my own kids. We were at a restaurant, Mike. Um, I'm not gonna tell you the, the location of it, uh, but it was in a rural location. And all the patrons of the restaurant were kind of turned around and watched their family come in. And my kids were going, everybody's staring at us. And I go, it's okay. Someone looking at you doesn't make that person a bad person. They're just not used to seeing you. If a green person walked in, you would turn around and stare at them. They're not used to seeing you. That doesn't make them a bad person. And so I have to explain to them that, you know, life is not going to be fair. And this is an important conversation we should have that absolutely life's not going to be fair. My dad would often tell me that people are going to look at you and judge you and have a perception of you by looking at you. It's your job to change that perception. So place your hand, is it gonna be fair? No, but put your hand out first, smile wider, and change that perception of what that person may think of you.
0: Your dad's a wise man.
1: And that's the opportunity that we all have, as opposed to just saying, it's unfair, look at what's happening to me. Make something of yourself. You could absolutely do it. I'm going to go back to this, the greatest country in the world with the greatest opportunities. Try doing what we did in another country. Probably wouldn't work, even in India. And so the opportunities are endless, but you have to want it. And no one else is going to take you from point A to point B. And that's too often, I think, that people want someone to take them from point A to point B to point C. Because you know what? I deserve it that's owed to me, nothing is owed to anybody. Right. And you have to make that happen yourself. And I think that, that I saw that, you know, my father, he pursued his PhD in food microbiology, and he got a job at a pickle company in Stockton, California. By the way, they call Stockton The armpit of California. I
0: have a friend who lived in Stockton for about five years, and he's told me that. Yeah,
1: it's not the most pleasant. Uh, When people say California, ooh, it must have been really nice growing up in California. No, 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 no. This is Stockton, California. And so, you know, he gets his job as a research scientist at a pickle company. And he leases this 11-room motel in Stockton, California. And he couldn't afford to buy it, so he leases it. And it's probably the payment payments, probably less than most people's car payment today. And he wants to continue to work at this pickle company. And this gives my mother an opportunity to run this business for us to save money on living expenses. So it, we move into this little apartment, uh, this little couple of bedroom apartment behind the motel office. And I remember at this time, I'm like eight years old. And... I helped my family clean rooms, doing laundry, um, taking out the trash, and even as an eight-year-old kid, checking in customers. Um, I remember the rates were $10 a night, $10 a night back then. And guess what? You got a hard key, and you got $2 back if you return the key. (laughs) So really, the net net rate was $8 a night. But that's uh, our introduction. To the motel, I'll say motel business. Right. And do you remember the
0: name yeah. of the motel?
1: Yes, I absolutely do. It's uh, the name of the motel was Stevens Motel, and you know what? I have not gone back to Stevens Motel. You know, we talked about pilgrimage. Yeah, I'm going to take my kids to go see that motel. Oh, that's
0: a great idea. Yeah, your next boutique hotel should be the Stevens.
1: That would be a great story, Mike. Uh, I always talk about stories, uh, great boutique hotel. We'll get to that one, but uh, it's a, like a great story.
0: So your dad leases the hotel motel. So the hospitality industry starts there. How do you get to Cleveland, Tennessee? Uh, there's a lot
1: of twists and turns. Um, so now I'm in fifth grade. We've been living in this motel for a couple of years. My father invites his brother and their family to the United States. Back then it was a lot easier to bring in family members from another country over to here. All of this, make it very clear, was legal immigration. And then about a year later, so they move into this motel, this family of five, and then he brings in his sister and her husband and couple of kids. So there's four more people and then so my father and my mother go, whoa, you know, that's a lot of people now. So let's give this business to one of them and let's look for greener pastures. And so there was an opportunity in Cleveland, Tennessee. They were called Scottish Inns. I don't know if you remember. I stayed in a Scottish okay. Inn
0: in Nashville once <clears throat> when we first moved from New York to Tennessee.
1: Well, fantastic. Uh, so there were a bunch of Scottish Inns up and down I-75 mm-hmm. from up north, probably all the way down to Florida. And it was a good brand, uh, but it was aging. And so they were they were selling a lot of these Scottish inns. And my father wound up uh, buying the one in Cleveland, Tennessee. He went to look at the one in Athens and then the one in Cleveland. And he just thought Cleveland was a little bigger city, closer to another bigger city, yeah. Chattanooga. And he wound up upgrading it to an Econolodge. So he's telling <laughs> you what kind of motel that was. But uh, here I am. So we moved cross-country from one of the most liberal parts of the country (laughs) to the center of the buckle of the belt of Cleveland, Tennessee. What a great city, though, Cleveland, Tennessee, great people. So moved to Cleveland, Tennessee, and this time we don't live in this motel. But again, Mike, I help out in this family business, doing laundry, uh, taking out the trash. This time we got a little pool. And as I got older, my parents finally had confidence that I'm old enough that I could take care of this business myself. And so they would go, not really on vacations. We never took vacations. It was a social obligation, right? Some sort (laughs) of wedding that they had to attend for three or four days. And then they would leave this motel to my hands as a 16-year-old or 17-year-old. Wow. But because I grew up in this business, that's the last thing I wanna do. And let me make this very clear. My parents came here to not simply make it a better life for themselves, to make a better life for that next generation.
0: Generational change. Generational change. Yeah.
1: And so for them, they were making those sacrifices. That's what the American dream is about, right? They were making sacrifices so we could have a better life. And for them, a better life is to be a professional not a small business owner cleaning rooms and doing laundry and plunging toilets. Yeah. <laughs> it was to be a professional, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be an engineer. And that's why you see a lot of Asian Americans, Indian Americans, many of them are doctors, many of them are engineers, and many of them wind up getting into business, but a lot of, lot of professionals. And so, it was just this drive for us to get a great education. And so, doctor, lawyer, or engineer, those were the three options. <laughs> so I picked the, what I thought was the easiest route of the three, yeah. and let me become an engineer. And that's what I wound up pursuing at the University of Tennessee. Do you have any siblings? I do have a younger
0: brother. A younger brother, so both of you were immersed in this. As that is correct.
1: He was six years younger. So. His experiences are a little different than mine.
0: And I understand that. I'm from a large family and the age range is like 15 years. And what the youngest experience is not what the oldest experience by any means. So you get your civil engineering degree and you don't go back and work in the family business. What do you do?
1: I've got my bachelor's in civil engineering. Then I wind up getting my master's in civil engineering and transportation, traffic engineering, emphasis. So I wind up getting a job down in Atlanta working. That's what I thought I was going to do the rest of my life. That's what I studied. That's what I got my master's in. That's what my parents' expectation of me mm-hmm. was to pursue that for the rest of my life. And so that's what I thought I was going to do. So I went down to Atlanta, worked for this company, designing roads, uh, doing traffic plans, doing traffic signalization uh, studies, uh, transportation plans. But that's what that's what I was doing. So I was in my little cubicle designing roads from two lanes to four lanes down in some highway down in South Georgia, you know, in 50-foot increments.
0: Sounds exciting.
1: It was not <laughs> exciting at all. I didn't really enjoy studying civil engineering while I was at University of Tennessee. I loved all the other aspects of going to college, yeah. uh, especially our beloved football. Yeah, But the actual you know, engineering wasn't really for me. I always thought I was a very creative person. And all through middle school and high school, I painted and I'd work exhibited in high school at the Hunter Museum.
0: Do, do you still have that art?
1: I still have a lot of that art, yes.
0: They need well, to re-exhibit it.
1: I don't, I don't know. People say, oh, you should put it up at the Edwin now. But yeah. no, 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 no. Uh, but I really enjoyed art. And uh, so engineering didn't give me the ability or give me the opportunity for the creative. I couldn't just move the lanes where I wanted to. I couldn't take those uh, yellow and white stripes and make it purple. And so it was monotonous and I didn't love it.
0: Sounds like it confined you. you. You had to color within the lines and you were probably a little bit more of, I think we ought to go this direction.
1: Absolutely, Mike. So I'm in my cubicle, and I just think that this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And I wasn't happy. And I did it for three years. And every time i talked to my parents, my parents would tell me, you're being lazy. You need to work hard at this. It's not about having fun. It's about making a living.
0: Because that's what their experience was. That's I what mean, their look what they was. did.
1: Absolutely. I don't think they were having fun cleaning rooms. <laughs> Um, but that's what they thought that I should be doing. And so that, that's what I thought I should be doing. And so I thought I was, I was stuck. Like I was stuck in this cubicle designing roads and bridges for the rest of my life.
0: How did you go about making that decision of, you know what, I'm going to go to my boss. I'm going to tell him, here's my two weeks notice. I got a little money in the bank and you're not taking over the Econolodge. You're going out on your own.
1: You know, at this time, my father is pretty much retired and He's out of the business. Um, So there was nothing handed to me. Did I grow up in the business? Did I get introduced to the business? Absolutely. But it was a completely different business. And so nothing was given to me uh, when I started. So I'd saved up $3,000 in these three years working as an engineer. And that's after I had to cash in my 401k (laughs) with penalties, by the way, which wasn't fun. And so there was this opportunity to build and manage a hotel in Chattanooga. My uncle was taking the lead on it, but he was looking for a partner and someone to manage it as well. So he approached me and it was the Homewood Suites. Never heard of this brand in my life. So I had a couple of challenges though with this. And I I took this plunge. I had very little money and this is a very capital intensive business, real estate. What year is this? We opened that hotel in 97, so this is 96. And the Olympics were about to come that summer and I just moved to Chattanooga, and I was gonna break ground on this hotel. So here, it's a very capital-intensive business. I had to come up with $352,000. You're talking about this kid that's 27 years old. <laughs> $352,000 for my share of the equity. And so I wound up borrowing every penny of that, friends and family, in 3000 5000 $10,000 chunks with eight, 10, 12% interest. Wow. And if I knew what I know today, I would have probably never done it because how in the world are you going to make this business work if you forget borrowing the debt, but when you have to borrow the equity and pay that back. Yeah. And so, so that was problem one. Problem two was I had no experience developing or managing a hotel. Yeah, I grew up in the business cleaning rooms, but that hardly qualifies me for that. And so here I'm 27 years old, and I'm just really literally thrown into the fire. Not just as a developer, I was tasked to be the contractor.
0: You like challenges.
1: I, I guess, or, <laughs> or complete ignorance, right? Well, uh, that,
0: that may have benefited you because you, you didn't know what you didn't know, so you just put your head down and went to work.
1: I think so, Mike. Uh, you know, I learned how to use a spreadsheet while I was a, an engineer. And engineering taught me logic, problem-solving, common sense. Mm-hmm. And I think I took that spreadsheet and some of the things that I learned and just said, "I'm going to go do it." Yeah. And so I wound up getting a porta-potty, a construction trailer, and then interviewed different subcontractors in every segment and wind up building this hotel on time, on budget. Now we're about to open. I moved in with my, my parents in Cleveland because I didn't have anything. I didn't have any money.
0: And, and what are they saying to you at this point? You've given up on the professional career.
1: So they were not very pleased with me. Yeah. I remember my father telling me, you're borrowing a lot of money. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. You need to stick to engineering. He wasn't very thrilled. So here I am living with my parents and I'm you know building this hotel. Here we're about to open it. I have zero salary. This is important when we talk about business. I was getting a pretty much a guaranteed, nothing's guaranteed, but this guaranteed two week paycheck. Mm-hmm. And on this side, nothing, just a bunch of debt. And my salary was gonna kick in the day the hotel opened. So I was very incentivized to open this thing. And so I literally took off my hard hat and learned how to put on a tie. It's the first time I really put on a tie and I'm the opening general manager of this hotel. And I never managed anyone at that point. And so I had to assemble a team. That was my introduction from construction development to now operations.
0: You literally learned the business from the ground up. You took an empty hole and built your first hotel and then ran it.
1: And I look back at it and what an incredible learning experience that I had and very unique. I have a lot of peers in the hotel industry that have done what I've done and even done way more than what I've done, but no one really has done that, you know? (laughs)
0: Well, it's a a unique story, just how it all came about, but also the way you built it from there. Is that hotel still in your portfolio?
1: No, Mike, uh, you know, uh, so I managed it for three years. And before that, I'll tell you, I thought about quitting because the first month we did 10% occupancy. Then we probably did 15 or 20% occupancy, and I thought, wow, did I get myself, did I make the right decision here? I owe people a lot of money, and this business is struggling. But then I really started thinking about, I can't let my team down, my partners down, my parents down. Yourself. Myself down. Yeah, I said, no, failure is not an option. We rolled up our sleeves, and I will have to tell you, in 18 months, it was a lot of hard work and dedication, but we wound up becoming the number one hotel in the market. Wow! But something else happened. This fire started burning inside me. I found this passion for this business. I talk about this all the time, place a squirrel in the tree and the fish in the sea. I was that squirrel in the water as an engineer, unhappy, drowning, not in my natural habitat. and guess what I get to do every single day now? Climb. Yeah, And I still have that passion. And when you have a passion for something, you're going to work harder. We'll overcome obstacles and we'll find success. And I think that that's what happened to me. I just found this passion for this business um, and the rest is history.
0: What is the element that drives that passion? I think
1: there's two things. I mean, there's many things, okay? But two things that stand out to me the most is the creative aspect of it that I touched on earlier. For me, a site is like a blank canvas. I get to create something beautiful on that blank canvas. In this case, they're hotels. And we get to create these incredible hotels that not just people get to see, but people get to experience.
0: That's an important word, experience.
1: Absolutely. People get married in our hotels, engaged, right? Business is done. Life milestone celebrations are done at our hotels.
0: So over Christmas, my oldest daughter lives in Austin, Texas, brings her boyfriend home. He had called me over Thanksgiving and said, I want to ask for your permission to ask Reagan to marry me. So Christmas Eve, they walk across the Walnut Street Bridge. He gets down on the the next place they go is the Edwin Hotel and the Whiskey Thief and some of the best engagement pictures you'll ever see. So there's the experience.
1: Well, thanks for sharing that mike uh yeah it's uh it, it is very rewarding this is a people serving people business not just a real estate business and those that understand that uh, are going to be more successful in that
0: a little bit earlier you gave me a gift a book about vision hospitality culture talk a little bit about that and what you try particularly in in these post-pandemic times and and people working remotely how do you capture that culture why is it so important to you
1: Long time ago, Mike, uh, when I was a general manager of that first hotel, I experienced what a poor culture and a great culture, a work culture would look like. When I used to work at an engineering company, my boss barely knew my name. You know, We didn't really celebrate anything. I didn't really enjoy wanting to come to work, not just because of what I was doing, but the, the workplace culture that existed at this company. And so all of these are are learning lessons and experiences that define who you are today. And so with that first hotel, I think it was really important for me to understand that if we were gonna be successful, then we had to make sure that we brought aboard people that embodied what we were trying to do, that shared our values and beliefs, and take care of them, simply take care of our people. And so our culture is pretty simple. It's about selecting great people with great attitudes because we can't teach those intangibles like a positive attitude. And then making sure that we take care of them. So everyone's born with an emotional register, but too often, like that engineering company that I used to work for, they wanted to make withdrawals without making any deposits. Yeah, They didn't want to get to know me, who I was, what's my story, if I had a pet, or what's my favorite food, music. They didn't really want to know who I was as a human being. I realize that all they want is something from me. Of course, we get a paycheck. But as we all know, that's not enough. That never was really enough. Mm-hmm. And today, that's not enough. People are longing for, for wanting more than that. And so it's really important that, that you take care of your associates and make those deposits in their emotional register before you make withdrawals. And if you have a happy and engaged team, you'll have obviously happy and loyal customers or guests and then greater market share, more profitability and so forth. So that's kind of the culture wheel that we talk about all the time. And I often quote Tony Shea, passed away, but he was the founder of Zappos. He knew nothing about shoes, knew nothing about e-retailing but he became the largest e-retailer of shoes in the country. Why? Because he focused on people. And if we're always trying to balance work and life, but if work is not work, there's nothing to balance. And now it's just life. And
0: so that's what we try to strive for in our company. I think what you've figured out, at least in my mind, is so many companies, particularly over the last 20 years, focus on driving that profit rather than focusing on their people and setting up the circumstances that the profits will follow if you do it correctly. So congratulations to you on that. That's it's the way to do it.
1: No, thank you. Thank you, we're having fun doing it.
0: Well, I, I can tell, and I've got a couple more questions for you. Why is it so important for you to, not only for your company, but for yourself to be involved in the community as you are? Because you do a lot of things in this community.
1: Yeah, I think community is an absolute core pillar of our company. So we want to surround ourselves with people that also share those values. So I think there's so many people in our organization that want to contribute in a meaningful way to their respective communities, but they just don't have the means, right? If it's a financial or if it's time. So we want to be able to give that opportunity to our associates. So it really goes down to not as much about Okay, what's the right thing to do? We can make an impact. Sure, those are important things, but what do our associates want? And our associates really want to volunteer, want to contribute, and we want to empower and encourage them for that. And that's why you see us be involved in 75 to 80 organizations a year in various ways is because it's really become a part of our culture and everyone wants to be a part of something bigger. And I think that there's something pretty powerful about that.
0: You know, with you talking about that, what I find interesting is for someone who, as he grew up, had to fit into communities that he he was immigrated to and was constantly moving and constantly the new kid, you've kind of taken the opposite direction with your company and very embracing of bringing everyone in and making them feel part of that.
1: I haven't thought about it in that way, Mike, Uh, but that's an interesting observation. I guess I should go see a therapist one day (laughs) and maybe lay down and and we could talk about all kinds of things like that. I got a couch right over here. Well, (laughs) We'll you you would do a great job of that.
0: Well, thank you. Last question, I want you to think back to your 25-year-old self and what would you tell yourself that's really important about a happy life that you know now that you didn't know then?
1: So I'm gonna just answer it a few ways. One, we talked about all the twists and turns <laughs> yeah. uh, with my personal story. So I don't know if there's a lot of things that I would change. All the, the hardships, the obstacles, the mistakes are why we are where we are today. And so who knows which direction it would have gone if we went another route. But there are a few things that I would absolutely do. One is I think as we get older, time becomes our most precious commodity. 25 years ago... When we started the company, we just celebrated our 25-year anniversary last year from that first hotel. Didn't have money, didn't have a business acumen, network, any of that experience. So we're blessed with a lot of those things today. But time becomes your most precious commodity. So I think that I would probably use my time more wisely and balance it with family. And I think family is, as you know, is most important. But, so there is one downside with passion. Passion is a very important ingredient in entrepreneurial success, but it can also consume you. You hear those stories all the time, Steve Jobs, right? Even Tony Shea. You can't let it consume you. And you can't let it take over the important other important aspects of your life. And it took me a long time to really completely understand that. And I'm a much better father and a husband and a child, (laughs) a son I should say, than I was uh, back then. And then the other thing is I think that I would surround myself with smart people early on. People were obviously great early on, but it takes you years to really understand that, ooh, I could afford or I should go get this person. And if you try to do everything yourself as an entrepreneur, that can't be sustainable. That goes back to that first thing. You try to do everything yourself. And I think that surround yourself with really smart people, smarter people than yourself, and have that belief that you will be successful ultimately. But there's always that fear that you're not gonna... And I think that fear still exists today. It's you a know? healthy fear, though. It's it? a healthy fear, yeah. It can never be overconfident. We're in a day-to-day lease business, Mike. Yeah, We saw the worst of it in 2020 when the pandemic hit. And um, we shut down two hotels. I never thought we would have to shut any hotels ever down. But I will have to say that in 22, we had our best year in the history of our company. It's amazing. I started with this. I'm going to end with this. This is the greatest country in the world with the greatest opportunities. And the American dream is absolutely alive. And never bet against the American spirit because we saw how amazing and resilient the American spirit is, that soon as they could, people wind up traveling uh, more than they ever had before. And it's just amazing how resilient that people are in this country. This country was founded on exploration, going to places that they haven't ever been. It's just amazing what we saw and we benefited in that uh, as a company. And it gives me confidence that if we could withstand something like that, then imagine what we can do going forward.
0: You're the embodiment of the American dream. And your story is exactly what we want to tell on My Morning Cup. But Mitch, really, I, I appreciate you taking time to, to talk with us. I love your story. Uh, you as a person, I, I can't think of anyone that I enjoy talking to more. And uh, thank you so much for coming on My Morning Cup.
1: Thank you for having me, Mike. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.